follow a linear storyline, sequential with one part depending on the part before it, which is why it's probably appropriate that Brian and I have been going through James over the course of the past several months um, sporadically. The book can really work like that. But there's some things in the book of James that connect these pieces together. There's some repeated words and phrases, there's some clever one-liners, and there's some themes throughout the book that kind of make some neat connections. And not for the purpose of teaching a bunch of doctrine, I don't think that was James' primary purpose. His primary purpose was to give practical and direct advice for how to, how to follow the path of true wisdom. Not just in word, but in deed. So we call James the wisdom literature of the New Testament. One of these repeated words that James uses is a word teleios. And this word is repeated in James' letter seven times. Seven, the number of perfection. Appropriate because this word means wholeness or completeness or perfection. This is the opposite of the fractured and inconsistent lives that we live when we don't follow the godly path to wisdom. As revealed in God's word, as James calls in his letter, the perfect law of liberty, and as Jesus summarized simply as love God, love neighbor. This is the path of true wisdom that God will use to make us whole and complete. He wants to make us whole and complete, but he also wants us to have skin in the game. That's why James is so practical and so convicting. Throughout this letter, we have both positive and negative examples that James uses to, to teach us. I've been thinking about these different ways that you can learn, positive and negative, um, because some of you might know the Feldner family has a new non-human animal living in our house now. And uh, this new non-human animal needs to be trained, obviously, and we've got to figure out how to do that. And news to me, there's apparently this lively debate in the dog training community about you know, the best way to train your dog. So if you have an opinion or some experience, please talk to me afterwards because I don't know what I'm doing. So lucky for us as humans, we can benefit and learn from both positive and negative experiences. And our text this morning in James 5 provides a pretty convicting negative example by way of a prophetic denunciation. We're going to see this morning in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Why don't you stand if you're able, and let's read God's word together. Verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Um, gracious Father, um, we thank you this morning for your word. Sufficient to teach us everything that we need um, to know. Sufficient to show us um, the path that you would have us walk, the path to true wisdom. And so uh, we come to you this morning and um, sit down to study um, from, from your word and we pray um, that your spirit would meet us here, would open our eyes and open our minds for what you have for us this morning. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a seat. 
first thing that I want us to pull out, the first insight I want us to get out of James this morning from this negative example is that we should, as followers of Christ, we should view wealth as a liability, not as something to envy. We should view wealth as a liability and not envy it. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you, he says. The rich here. You know, who are the rich? It's a big question in this text. This is probably a category of people, I think, outside the church, based on James' language and his tone. He uses these phrases like, talks about the miseries that are coming and things that, to me, seem to assume these people are going to be judged and condemned and not be forgiven. He addresses this group as you rich, um, not as brethren like he does for the most of his letter, which is for the most part written for Christians, for the very earliest Jewish Christians that were fleeing Jerusalem under the initial persecution there. So he uses this term, you rich, not brethren. He actually goes back to talking about brethren right in verse 7 in the next passage. Um, so he's referring to this different group here. He also uses the same word for howl that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint. You can see that same word used in Joel and a bunch of places in Isaiah, at least one spot in Jeremiah. He uses this word, the same word. He's denouncing and condemning this category of people he's calling the rich. He's not calling them to repentance. He's prophesying about their judgment. So probably referring to the wealthy outside the church, but we're going to see here that there are lessons for people inside and outside the church in this. You know, there probably weren't very many, if any, wealthy Christians in James' original audience. The early church at this time was way more likely to be on the receiving end of all of these abuses that he's denouncing here than to be doing it themselves in this case. So these lessons that are intended primarily for the church are intended primarily for the church by negative example. Don't be like these people that are oppressing you, he says. Don't covet what they have. Now, it's worth mentioning at this point that this is not a universal condemnation on all rich people, on all money. It's not being used in that way. Wealth is not necessarily a sin. But I think he would tell us that believers should view it as a liability. It's not something we should aspire to. In fact, rich people are commended in scripture, right? And people are blessed by God with everything they have, including material wealth in some cases. Think of Abraham. Think of Job. Think of David. Think of Solomon. Joseph, too. There are many wealthy people in the Old Testament. and in The New Testament, Philemon, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, there's a bunch more. The point is, is it's not just a sin to be rich. That's not the point that James is making here. Wealth back then and now is often perceived as a sign of God's approval, though, sometimes incorrectly. There would have been a strong temptation in James's audience to envy the wealth they see in other people and its corresponding power and influence. You know, in our day, there are people who even profess to be Christians and think this way about wealth. There's a lot of people who preach a false prosperity gospel that distorts the gospel message into something that's self-centered and wealth-centered playing to our human tendency to be fixated on these things, to be fixated on money and to pursue it, regardless of the cost. We know that this wealth fixation and this 
favoring the rich was a problem in James in the early church because in chapter 2 he talks about it. Remember the rich people in the church that were beginning, being given preference over the poor people because they were rich? He makes the point back there that this is the opposite of biblical love. You can't show favoritism, especially in a church, to somebody just because they can benefit you, especially if it's just financially. James here is putting wealth into perspective. He's telling us not to desire it and to be careful how we pursue it and to be careful not to envy it. So obvious question we should maybe ask ourselves as we're thinking through some of these things is, I don't know, do you consider yourself wealthy? You're rich? So my kids were playing a game on Friday in the other room, and I overheard the game because they were playing it with like an amplified karaoke speaker. So it was hard to not, I was trying to write this sermon and they were doing this. And so they were playing this game where Zoe was the host interviewing Josiah, asking him questions. And it was pretty cool, pretty cute. And she was asking the almost impossible question of the day, which she got from, I think, from Family Life Radio. So Zoe's the announcer and she asked Josiah the question, what, this is the almost impossible question of the day, what do 80% of all people have in their home? What do 80% of all people have in their houses? And some of his answers, answers were interesting. The first one was a dog, right? Clearly, he's got the dog on his mind. TV, there's all sorts of questions given. The key here, though, of course, and you probably caught it because of what we're talking about, the way that the question was asked, it was people, 80% of humans. What do 80% of humans have in their home? It wasn't 80% of Americans. Our answer would be very different, which is my whole point in bringing this up. The answer in this case was, anyone know it? That's what I thought too. It's actually kitchen, it's a kitchen. The reason it's not water or plumbing is because 80% would be way too high. I don't think 80% of homes around the world have running water in their homes, but you gotta cook, right? So that kind of makes sense. Did you know that the poorest 20% in the US, if you took the poorest 20% by some economic measure, and you carved them off and made them their own country, they would be wealthier than even half the countries in Europe. In that same poorest 20% of Americans make 20 times more money than the average person anywhere else in the world, 20 times. In 2017 alone, Americans spent $70 billion on our pets. We spent $1.32 trillion on non-health insurance premiums basically paying money to protect our stuff from natural disasters and accidents. Newsflash, we are extremely wealthy. James warns us in chapter four to view the desires of our heart as a liability. They have the potential to be a stumbling block, great potential to be a stumbling block. He's doing the same thing here for material wealth. A really wise man you may recognize once said that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in this case, was answering the, the rich young ruler who asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus' response was basically nothing. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. There's nothing anyone can do to merit forgiveness and salvation. This is a free gift of God. It's offered to us by grace. This is undeserved. This is unmerited favor. We bring nothing to the table when it comes to eternal life. People that already have a lot of stuff have a harder time seeing their desperate need and their desperate inability to earn their own forgiveness and salvation, both of which are a gift. What about you? Do you understand how much you need forgiveness? Do you understand that you can't do anything to earn it? 
regardless of how smart you are, how rich you are, how capable you are. Have you agreed with God about your sin and turned from your own selfishness and trust in his provision alone? Christ, condescending to become a human, lived a perfect and sinless life, died in my place and yours. And he rose from the dead to demonstrate his power over life and death. He exchanged our sin, our shortcomings. He gave us his righteousness. And then he invites us into the family of God forever. Eternal life, eternal purpose, eternal meaning. This is the eternal life that the rich man was asking Jesus about. I hope you know what that is. Please know this morning that if you don't, you can't know what it is. Remember that the rich young ruler in this story went away sad. Why did he go away sad? He wasn't willing to give up his wealth. It says he was very rich. He wasn't willing to give this up. He didn't realize the extent of his need because he was blinded by his wealth. Material things can be a great liability. If you know the Lord and you've accepted Christ and you're an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God because of what Christ has done, we still get a message from this, and this is don't trust in anything else besides his provision, especially something as fleeting as material prosperity. Wealth's a potential liability, whether it's your wealth or it's somebody else's wealth that tempts you to envy them. As we move on through this text, we're going to see four indictments that James gives, and these are the, these are the points in your notes there are these four indictments. We're going to see James indicting these rich for hoarding, for fraud, for self-indulgence, and for valuing profit over people. First, in verse 2 and 3, we can learn the lesson that as followers of Christ, we should be careful not to hoard. Be a conduit and not a reservoir. We should be careful not to hoard. We should be a conduit and not a reservoir. What's a reservoir? A reservoir is a store for something, right, like a water tank. It holds on. A conduit is a pathway. It allows resources to flow through it to something else. It doesn't attempt to hold on to them. Verse 2 and 3 here, James uses three kinds of wealth as an example. He talks about stores of food. Those are the things that rot, right? He's referring to garments, clothes, that become moth-eaten and fall apart. He's talking about precious metals, which become gold, which become corroded or tarnished. These are three really common signs of wealth in the first century. That's why he's using them as, exam as examples. You know, most people didn't even have a single change of clothes, let alone lots of them. Only the wealthy and very well-off had these things. Now, if you're an engineer type like me, maybe you were bothered by the fact that gold and silver don't technically rust. But they do tarnish over time, and this is, this is his point. They lose their luster just from sitting around, especially. Hoarding riches is a great waste in light of eternity. And whether the Lord comes tomorrow or we all die a natural death, minutes, days, years, decades from now, we should keep an eternal perspective when we think about how we handle our money. So does this mean that we shouldn't own any gold or silver or that it's a sin to have a walk-in closet and a pantry in our house? Or is a 401k or an IRA or other retirement savings, is this a sin? What about insurance policies? What about having estate planning advisors? What about having mountain bikes and motorcycles and other luxuries? Where's the line? Because if you hoard, you probably don't know the Lord. 
probably heard that somewhere. It was written in my notes, and I didn't attribute it to somebody. I probably didn't make that up. If you hoard, you probably don't know the Lord, but I've remembered it now this week. Truth is, you probably have more stuff than you need. I have more stuff than I need, for sure. It's good for us to question if we're using the resources that God has given us. Does he even have us use them? You know, if you, when I was writing this stuff down and preparing this, I had this terrifying vision of me standing up here trying to get through James 5, and then somebody behind me put a picture of my shop up, the inside of my shop, like all my stuff, you know? That made me really uncomfortable. And uh, you wouldn't be wrong to call me a hypocrite. How much is too much? You know, I don't know what the number is. I can't give you a number, but I know that our answer as followers of Christ has to be different than what culture would tell us is acceptable or okay. We should keep in mind that we are going to give an account to the Lord most high for every dollar we spend on anything, especially the stuff we spend on ourselves. The stuff that we've hoarded will be a witness against us on Judgment Day. That's what James says very clearly. Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourself, Jesus says, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. God chooses to, to bless you with any amount of material wealth and success, comfort, and he's blessed most of us with that. We should be conduits of that, those resources, not reservoirs. He didn't give it to us to hoard. He didn't give it to us for our comfort. Protect your heart. Treasure people more than stuff, always. 1 Timothy 6, 7. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we should be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. A fourth indicator of wealth in the first century was the land that you own. And if you owned a significant amount of land, you were also an employer. And that brings us to our next lesson from James' next indictment. We learn that we should be careful not to cheat people. We should be careful not to cheat people because God gives justice for the oppressed. Behold, the pay of the laborers, verse 4, who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. Here we see laborers being cheated by their employer. And we also see God himself hearing the cries of the oppressed. The word used here, Lord of Sabaoth, um, Lord of hosts is another translation. Lord of heaven's armies is another translation. This is an Old Testament military phrase referring directly to God's judgment, which is certain and will overcome any resistance by force if necessary. Psalm 103.6 says, The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Psalm 147, Psalm 146, verse 7. It's God that executes justice for the oppressed. Now, if you happen to be in a position of employing other people, I think the application here is pretty obvious. The Old Testament, of course, repeatedly warns against defrauding workers. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 14, reads, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, 
whether he's one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who's in your land and in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he's poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it become a sin in you. In the first century and in more ancient times than that, most laborers lived hand to mouth, right? If you're working in a field, if you didn't get paid for your day's labor, you probably wouldn't eat, and your family might not eat either. That type of injustice is seen by God and is not tolerated by God in the end. Its perpetrators will be judged by the Lord of Heaven's armies, is what James says here. Now, his original audience would have been made primarily more of the worker class, right? Not a bunch of wealthy landowners. And he's picking up on a theme that he uses throughout his letter. There's a couple more spots where he's talking about the rich as oppressors. He does it in chapter 1. He does it in chapter 2. But we can extend this application to both worker and employer and to everyone else instead and take this simple thing away. It's not okay. It's never okay for any reason to cheat people. Proverbs 3 says, don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. We could say a lot more on that, but I think it's pretty, I think that point's pretty clear. So let's move on to the next one. The rich here, as James is indicting them, they're not only hoarding and cheating, they're also living a life of wanting pleasure. So we should be careful not to live a life of luxury and self-indulgence. We should be careful not to live a life characterized by luxury and self-indulgence. James is addressing this hedonistic philosophy here like he did back in chapter 4. Hedonism, remember, is the idea that pursuing the most pleasure or the most comfort for yourself is how you should live. It's good. You should maximize pain and minimize pleasure. It sort of sounds like the air we breathe and the culture that we live in, to me anyway. Very American thing. James' whole point back there was that our desires are the problem. Fulfilling our desires cannot be the focus of a follower of Christ. They cannot. The rich here take it even a step further, according to James. They're fixated on living luxuriously and indulging every desire, going over the top. Conspicuous consumption is the word, the phrase for this. Buying and showing off stuff just to flaunt the fact that you have money and you're in some social status. Maybe even wanting to provoke other people to envy. You know, I mentioned earlier the false prosperity gospel preachers that these things exist, these people exist. There's a lot of people out there who become really rich by distorting the gospel. They manipulate vulnerable, vulnerable people by the thousands while they live a life of luxury and wanton pleasure. And I'm going to name some names because why not? Joel Osteen. He, this man has a net worth of $100 million. He lives in an ostentatious mansion and drives a Ferrari. T.D. Jakes claims to be a minister of the gospel. He lives in a 14,000 square foot mansion, collects luxury cars, and is known for wearing expensive jewelry to show off the fact that he's got stuff. Crefto Dollar is worth at least $27 million, has a couple of Rolls Royces. He even claims that Jesus would drive a Rolls if he was on the earth right now. He wouldn't be riding a donkey, right? Kenneth P Copeland, he's worth $350 million, so says the internet. He lives in a mansion that's somehow owned by the church, and he flies around in three of his privately owned jets. There's a lot of names we can give here. I'll give one more. Jesse Duplantis is a televangelist, and he 
once solicited donations during a sermon. I went and YouTube this. It was an amazing thing to watch and horrifying, actually. Solicited donations so he could buy a $54 million plane so he could minister the gospel of Christ throughout the world with, you know, without flying commercially. He already owned three jets at the time that he did that. This man also brags about having 22 chandeliers in his house, every one of which is worth more than the average American home. I think I don't have to beat that horse anymore. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, is James' word to these people who live in this ostentatious way. Think about a cow being fattened up to be sold off or to be slaughtered. That's the image he's giving us here for a feast that's coming up. This cow is separated from the other cows, and he's fed a special diet, and he's taken care of a, in a special way. Put yourself for a second. This is kind of hard to do, but why don't you try to put yourself in the shoes of the other cows? You see, it's a weird thing to ask. I'll probably never ask it again, but you see this cow being taken away, separated, given all this good food, like way more than you're getting, if cows even think like this. Shade clean water, this cow's being very well taken care of. If I'm that cow, I'm like, what the heck, man? You know, I, I want that stuff too. I'd probably be envious if cows could be envious. But they're being fattened for the day of slaughter is the point. That's why James uses this, this metaphor. Here, James even has these false teachers doing it to themselves. These rich doing it to themselves at the expense of others. They probably don't even realize what's coming, but judgment is coming. James makes the point unambiguously. Six times in six verses, James directly refers to judgment. Selfishly pursuing and hoarding and using wealth in this way, in light of eternity, is the height of foolishness, is his point. Remember the story that Luke tells in chapter 12 of this man who is trying to get Jesus to help him collect his inheritance from his brother? In his response, Jesus says, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even the one who has an abundance does his for not even for the one who has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then Jesus told him this parable. The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. And be merry. Remember what God said to him? You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you've prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You may not be rich by American standards. And you probably aren't rich compared to these televangelist preachers I talked about a minute ago. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a first-century Christian, anyone in this original audience, I wouldn't call you inconceivably wealthy. We need to be careful how we use our own resources, especially if we're using them for our own comfort. James' final indictment to the rich teaches us that we should value, we should never value profit over people. Never value profit over people. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man, he says in verse 6. He does not resist you. Now this could refer specifically to the withholding of wages from a laborer that we talked about before. You know, in a way, this could be metaphorical murder or maybe direct murder. I mean, if the person actually died because he didn't get paid and couldn't eat. He could also be referring back to chapter 2 in this context of, of not dishonoring the poor whom God chose 
by showing preference to the rich that came into the church looking rich and received better treatment because they looked rich? Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court, James says? You could be referring back to this. The point stands regardless. And it's always true that there are some rich people that will acquire wealth and use their influence and power in a way that oppresses innocent people who just get in the way inadvertently. We could apply this as believers as being careful to never use people instrumentally, especially if we hold any type of power over these people. I've heard it said like this, it's the way of the world to love money and to use people, but the Bible teaches us to love people and to use money. It's a great way to remember this principle. We should never value profit over people. To take the application further, I would even replace profit in here with comfort. Don't value your comfort, your wealth, your financial security, your career, your leisure time. Don't value this over people, ever. Certainly don't think you can use people as mere instruments to some other end, any other end. Rather, we should be looking for opportunities to make sacrifices for the sake of other people. We should be willing to risk our own comfort and stability to help the vulnerable. James said in chapter 1, remember, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, get some skin in the game, risk your comfort. A recent example related to this. Any of you guys seen that movie, Sound of Freedom? That's been out for a couple of weeks now? Anyone seen it? This uh, movie was inspired by a true story of the life of this guy, Tim Ballard, who was a special agent, worked for the US government. He was working on, a, on the border uh, with Mexico, fighting sex trafficking and the child sex trade. And in 2012, he was working a case both in, in Haiti and in Colombia when his boss pulled him off the case because the US government didn't have jurisdiction anymore. So Agent Ballard himself had six kids at home to take care of, and he was only 10 months away from getting his full governmental pension, retirement, comfort. He was presented with a really difficult decision because he knew and was all set up and been working for a year and setting up an, an operation to save these kids. He had a hard decision to make. He knew what he was being convicted to do, but he knew he'd have to quit his job if he was going to do this. Right? This is what the movie was about. He'd have to say goodbye to all the stability of this government position that he had and everything else and figure out how to go save these kids without the backing of the U.S. government. In October, on October 11th of 2014, he led a privately funded operation that saved 120 of these kids, and the movie is about one of those operations. I tried when I was watching this movie a couple weeks ago on vacation, I, I put myself in that guy's shoes. And I'm thinking, you know, how tempting would it be to frame that decision in terms of providing for my family, which is a, not a bad thing, right? If anyone does not provide for his own, Paul said to Timothy, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith is worse than an unbeliever. How quick I would be if I was put in that guy's position to jump to the safe, comfortable option and even prop it up with some scripture, right? But do we seriously think that God is never going to ask us to risk our financial security, our comfort for the sake of his kingdom to do bigger things with us? He doesn't have us on earth so that we can store up stuff for ourselves and be comfortable and even to make our children comfortable. You ever think that God has something bigger for me and for you, but we're too, we're too fixated on our own comfort to see it, and we miss it? 
When I was 26, my dad gave me a birthday present. It's a pretty cool gift. I cherish it to this day. It's in my office. He hand-carved, my dad's not an artist either, so it's even more meaningful. He hand-carved a portrait of Albert Einstein, somebody I admired through childhood, out of wood. And with the following quote underneath it, this is an Einstein quote. He said, a person starts to live when he can live outside himself. Okay, Einstein's not in scripture, but it's a good quote, and it's a quote that stuck with me. I've been um, blessed, as I suspect other people in this room have as well, by a lot of people um, in this body, mostly, that I've witnessed routinely putting the needs of others above their own comfort, out of love for God and, and love for people. I can say this is true about my own family. My father and my wife have been examples of this. To me, you know, one of the most self-deprecating, unassuming, and humble servants that I've known over the years is Paul Strauss, who served this body very well for a decade. And uh, we're going to miss having him around regularly. Paul is really good at focusing on people over stuff, even to a fault, maybe, if that were possible. And I love him for that. A great anecdote, I think, for not falling into this temptation of being fixated on wealth and comfort is to maybe consider making our financial decisions whenever possible, make them personal. Make them as personal as possible. You know, I sort of love at this church, this is a weird thing to say that you love about the church, but I love, you know, we had this construction fundraising campaign for this construction project this year, and uh, we sort of fell short, like catastrophically short, like we didn't raise the money to do, so okay, God, we're hearing you, but I can think of a dozen times in the last year when there's been a personal need or a family need, and I've seen the people in this body step up and give sacrificially until it hurt at the expense of their own comfort, and that happens over and over again. Make it personal. If, you're, if we're able to give to a missions organization, know the missionaries, pray for them by name, encourage their pastors, send your pastor to teach them in person, build eternal relationships in the process, sponsor a child by name rather than just sending money to an organization, develop another eternal relationship. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation, James tells us, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. I'm going to end this morning with Paul's words to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy, Timothy 6, verse 7, he said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Stand with me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Lord, help us to uh, heed the message from your word this morning and not to love money or to love our own comfort or to envy anyone who has more of either than we do. Lord, help us to never hoard. Show us how to be conduits and not reservoirs of the blessings you give and praise you for loving to give your children good gifts. Lord. When we're tempted to cheat other people, would you show us a way out so that we don't sin against you? By your mercy, keep us away from pursuing a leisurely life characterized with self-indulgence and worrying about our own pleasure. 
Lord, help us to love you, to love our neighbor better. Thank you for this little step on the path of um, showing us the wisdom of, of your word. Thanks for giving us the power to walk in it by your spirit and do the work you've assigned in us. In his name, Lord, we pray.